Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 11th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This week marked the beginning of my 11th year with Christiania. Because I never hear from most of the people who peruse the fruits of my labors, I can only measure my success, or my failure, in terms of how many visitors I get at my websites, or how many podcasts are downloaded each week, or sometimes the response in social media, but even that is only a small fraction of the people who access our material. So according to our DNS provider, on average, in 2017, Christiania had 101,570 unique visitors each month. That's different people visiting the website, on average, each month. In 2018, the average was 120,114 unique visitors each month. Israel elect which I did not create, but which I also now control, has about 40,000 unique visitors each month, a number which has been relatively stable for several years, ever since I've been paying attention. I've owned Israel Elect since mid-2012. Christagenia has spent most of the last nine years ranked in the top 200,000 websites in the world by visitor activity, sometimes higher and sometimes a little lower. According to the software which we use on our website, just over a million copies of our podcasts were downloaded in 2017 and nearly 1.4 million in 2018. Praise Christ. I can take no credit for that, but can only praise Yahweh, because that is many times more than I could ever have imagined when I began this endeavor in January of 2009. While I think I may have done a few things which were worthwhile along the path these last ten years, some friends, especially those who are now former friends, have expectations which I did not meet, and now they are disappointed. To that, I have one thing to say. Tough! That is just too bad. Apparently, your feelings are hurt, but I do not care. Christagenia is not a church. I am not a priest, a bishop, or a pope, and I never will be. My teachings and opinions are not negotiable, and I will never buy into any heresy or any imagined doctrine unless it is clearly outlined in Scripture. Christagenia is not a charity. We do not take donations in order to distribute to the poor. We are under no obligation to squander our often meager income on any man or on anyone else's wayward aspirations. Rather than church or charity, 
Christogenia is an academic endeavor which aspires to set Christian identity truth on a firm academic foundation. And Christogenia is also a technical endeavor to spread a message which spreads the knowledge of that foundation as widely as possible. One person assuming responsibility for both of those tasks requires a great effort because it is indeed a sizable endeavor. It also has a sizable overhead cost. Technology alone costs me in excess of a thousand dollars a month. With that money, I host not only well over a dozen Christogenia websites, but also at least two dozen other Christian identity and nationalist websites. As a digression, I lease and manage over a dozen internet web servers, some of which are rather small and which I use for particular services, such as radio streaming, and others which are rather large and which are high-volume web servers, such as the server that the main website sits on. If I did not have my ministry to attend to, I could probably manage at least a hundred servers. According to reliable sources, the average pay for a network manager is over $84,000 per year, far more than I will probably ever see in a year at Christogenia. I only want to state that I personally may easily have taken a different and more lucrative path in my life. Sadly, along the way I've learned that some of the people who pretend to want to help me only have an agenda and want to promote themselves. So they promote my work in order to attract attention to themselves. And by doing that, they eventually think that they have earned some sort of entitlement from me. Or they imagine that I should follow them along some with some pet heresy which they are also trying to promote. When I do not go along with their treachery, they slander me and try to lead people away from me. The first time I experienced that was with Eli James. Then a short while later, it was Don Spears. Then the next notable snake in the grass was Ryan Brennan and with him Michael Brandenburg, the prosperity clowns who think that they can create their own reality. There seems to be a never-ending stream of these types who promote my work and use me only to help themselves. Now there is one more supposed friend on the horizon who may also be exposed as having had that same agenda, but I will withhold judgment until the fruit blossoms. The tree is only known by its fruit. This is what creates adversity, division, and tarnishes Christian identity as a whole, that men have their own agendas rather than seeking to serve Christ. If we all sought to serve Christ, we could live with petty disagreements, without despising one another. If we all sought to serve Christ but could not agree on something of importance, we could do as Paul and Barnabas. 
parting ways peacefully and going along our own path without slandering one another. But dishonest men, who would rather serve themselves, use underhanded means to destroy everything that is good for their own gain. And by that, they prove that they are devils. Alan Rouse The Christian Gospel, when it is presented properly, without compromise, and without being watered down or polluted with elements of what we call churchianity, is basically the good message of Yahweh's reconciliation with the children of Israel and his desire to build them up into a distinct kingdom with the exclusion and at the expense of all others. This gospel of racial covenant theology, which we call Christian identity in order to distinguish it from the false universalist churches, is indeed the Elijah message for the last days, which was prophesied in the closing passage of the Christian Old Testament in the last verses of Malachi chapter 4. I have never sought to promote myself. I never go chasing after radio interviews or publicity outside of what I publish on my own website. I do have some offers from others that I occasionally accept, but I wait for people to find me, and then I decide whether or not I want to talk to them. Doing that, I have always sought only to promote this message. Everything else is secondary to the promotion of this message and the need to illuminate the truth of the history and the scriptures that describe and announce this message. Neither is Christogenia an activist movement. For that reason, because I felt a need to engage in IRL or in real life activities, I joined the League of the South, a group of mostly like-minded Christian men and women, which is better equipped and better oriented towards such endeavors. I do not expect all of my listeners, even all of those in the South, to join a league, even if I would encourage that. But rather, I would hope to set an example, that we have to engage in real-life activities. We have to set good examples and spend at least some of our time spreading our message in real life if we are ever going to be successful. So the League of the South is the only worthwhile organization that I had encountered which enabled me to set that example, while also offering me the opportunity to engage in a worthwhile cause alongside a worthy group of men. If I sought to promote myself, perhaps I could have tried organizing my own activist structure and trying to play Hitler like a Heimbach or a Jeff Shope or some of those other clowns. That is certainly not a path I want to attempt. Instead, I only seek to promote our message. And to do that, I am more than willing to humble myself and be a mere member of an organization built by others. The League of the South's core beliefs 
on a regional and local level is wholly compatible with our Christian identity message. What I will not do, however, is try to change the League into a Christian identity church group, as that is certainly not its purpose. I had hoped to publish at least several books last year, and that effort was hampered first because caring for Clifton Emmaheiser was much more time-consuming than I had ever imagined, and then by the hurricane this past October, from which I am still not entirely recovered. But we certainly do miss Clifton, and we wish that he was here with us. Over the coming months, as we get settled into our new home, books will once again become a priority. There certainly will be a book form of our commentary on the prophecy of Malachi in the near future, Yahweh God be willing. What I do, I cannot do alone. I need financial support. I need help in my forum. I need help in social media, help in real life, and help in other ways that I may not even yet realize. This is not an appeal, but only an explanation. If our friends believe in this message, they will walk the path with us and seek to contribute to our common cause in one way or another, seeking to serve Christ and not seeking to promote themselves or to promote some heresy or another, like this prosperity gospel that some clowns formerly associated with me have taken up after. I praise Christ that I've been able to do this for 10 years now, and I also pray that I am able to continue until his return, or until I am called to him. Of course, I would rather see the former. With this, we shall present our commentary on the Gospel of John. Part 13, A Tale of Two Women. Of course, we are still discussing the Samaritan woman. In our last presentation on this series, discussing the first 20 verses of John chapter 4, we gave some background into the history of Samaria from the time of the Assyrian deportations in order to show that there were many Persians, Babylonians, Syrians, and others who were resettled there by the ancient Assyrians at the height of their empire. And the Judean historian Flavius Josephus generally referred to these new inhabitants as Cuthians. But, as we showed from the historical, historical accounts of Scripture, there was also a significant number of remnant Israelites who had remained there, who had escaped the Assyrian captivity. Then, in addition to these groups, there was also a large number of Levites and Judahites from Jerusalem who had relocated themselves to the area around Gerizim as early as the late 4th century BC, and who by this time could be called Judeans. Many of these had mixed with the Cuthians, as Josephus had also explained. 
We also pointed out the fact that on at least a couple of occasions, Josephus, Josephus certainly seemed to distinguish the inhabitants of Shechem and Gerizim from the peoples whom the Assyrians had imported. Then, around 330 BC, a second temple was built on Gerizim, and from that time a community of Judeans and proselytes worshipped at Gerizim before that temple fell into disuse over a period of about 200 years. But even though the temple was abandoned, it is apparent that both remnant Israelites and the more recently introduced Judeans had continued to inhabit the area. Flavius Josephus, describing the period of the rule of John Hyrcanus, which began around 130 BC, said that the temple at Gerizim was now deserted 200 years after it was built. That's in Antiquities, Book 13. Where it is evident that that period of 200 years must have been from the building of that temple to the time of John Hyrcanus. So, to us, that also suggests that it was the Maccabees themselves, who were the Levitical high priests at Jerusalem, that had most likely put an end to the worship at Gerizim after their conquest of the area, although Josephus does not state that explicitly. But here in John chapter 4, it is also apparent that at least some of the people around Gerizim whether descendants of the remnant Israelites or of those Judeans who relocated there in the 4th century had continued in the customs of their ancestors. In our last presentation, we also asserted that the Samaritan woman of John chapter 4 must have been a descendant of the remnant of ancient Israel although we admitted the possibility that she may have been, in whole or in part, descended from some of the relocated Judeans. We made this admission because, while the woman was indeed a descendant of the ancient Israelites, we really cannot tell with certainty from the historical record which of those groups of Israelites she was descended from. We only concluded that we leaned toward the former, that the woman must have been a descendant of Ephraim, and we gave our reasons for that conclusion. But there is another way to be certain that this is indeed the correct view, and that is in the words of Christ here, in verse 22, where it becomes evident that the woman is not from Judah, nor from of the Judeans and therefore she must have descended from the remnant Israelites. As we have seen and discussed, the woman's claim that she was a descendant of the ancient Israelites must have been valid since it was not refuted by Christ. We provided the history in order to demonstrate how it was possible that the claim was valid, 
and how at one time there was indeed a temple on Gerizim where Israelites had worshipped. So it is also apparent, as we have also already described, that many of the aspects of the character of the Samaritan woman and her encounter with Yahshua Christ stand as a type and as a sort of parable representing aspects of the relationship which the so-called lost sheep of the children of scattered Israel had with Yahweh their God. Notably, the encounter happened at Sikar, which is a name from the same Hebrew word for drunkenness or drunkard that is found in the prophecies of Hosea, which referred to the drunkards of Ephraim. And Sikar was located very much near the ancient city of Shechem in Mount Ephraim. This woman was certainly a descendant of those ancient drunkards of Ephraim. And therefore, the encounter evokes that very prophecy in Hosea. Aspects of her life, which were noted here by Christ, such as her having had five husbands, and her being with a man who was not her husband, also correlate to the conditions suffered by those same lost sheep of the children of Israel, as a nation held captive under the, under the power of a series of empires, having been put off by Yahweh, who is their only legitimate king and their only legitimate husband. We have often said, however, that Christ could have no real communion with the lost or divorced tribes of Israel until after his death and resurrection made possible their reconciliation. However, here, here we have a seeming exception and another example. This woman attested that her fathers worshipped in this mountain. And further on, in verse 25, we see her express an expectation of the coming Messiah. Therefore, she must have kept the ancient faith at least to some degree, and her Israelite ancestors, even if they had previously been in a state of apostasy, would have been reacquainted with that faith, at least in part, through their attendance at the temple on Gerizim. Towards the end of our last presentation, we referred to the Judeans at Jerusalem who despised the Samaritans as being those of the circumcision. While it is possible that these remnant people of Israel who had worshipped at Gerizim had practiced circumcision, we cannot be certain of that, and it nevertheless seems unlikely. This is elucidated in the treatise of Flavius Josephus against Appion, in book one of that treatise, where Josephus had attested that there are no inhabitants of Palestine that are circumcised excepting the Judeans. We must remember that the tribes of the northern kingdom were actually pagan after the death of Solomon from the time of Jeroboam I. If her menfolk were circumcised, 
they should have been able to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And that also seems not to be the case here, since later in the chapter, the disciples of Christ also marveled that he had even conversed in this manner with the Samaritan woman. But regardless of the likelihood of their not having been circumcised, the woman certainly did retain aspects of the faith of her ancestors, and a reverence for and anticipation of the expected Messiah. Therefore, it is apparent that in her we see an instance of the fulfillment of yet another prophecy, which is found in Isaiah chapter 56. Thus saith Yahweh, and I will make a few notations as we proceed to read this. Thus saith Yahweh, Keep ye judgment, and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. This is addressed to the Israelites in captivity. Blessed is the man that does this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger, referring to the estranged people of Israel, that has joined himself to Yahweh, speak, saying, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people. So they must have been his people in the first place. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. The cut-off children of Israel are metaphorically referred to here as eunuchs and dry trees. For thus saith Yahweh unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger, the children of those estranged people of ancient Israel, that join themselves to Yahweh to serve him and to love the name of Yahweh, to be his servants, every one that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people, or for all of the people. Yahweh God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, saith, Yet will I gather others to him, others being the Israelites who would be born in the wilderness, besides those that are gathered unto him. Once again, this Samaritan woman was one of those outcasts of Israel, a child of those who had been estranged from their God in ancient times. So having kept aspects of the faith and an expectation of the Messiah, 
and therefore hoping to take hold of the covenant, she earned a place better than that of sons and daughters. To which this gospel here attests. But that is not to say that she wasn't a daughter in the first place. For she certainly was, or she would not have had Jacob for a father. And she would not have had any expectation in a Messiah. Understanding this, before we continue with our commentary on John chapter 4, we should compare the encounter of Christ with this Samaritan woman to another encounter which she had, which is recorded only in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, with a Canaanite woman. An honest comparison of the two events also helps to establish that the scope of the Gospel and the hope in Christ are indeed limited to the physical seed of the children of Israel. The Canaanite woman, as she was identified by Matthew, had instead been described as a Greek, a Syrophoenician, in the Gospel of Mark. However, the term Canaanite was not used as either an ethnic nor a geographical designation at the time of Christ. Ostensibly, Matthew, being a Hebrew, was identifying the woman in Old Testament terms so as to, so as to convey her true nature, while Mark, who was actually writing for a Roman audience, merely offered cultural and geographical identification. It can be proven that Mark was writing for a Roman audience, where very often we see terms of measure in Mark's Gospel, which was written in Greek, and the terms of measure are all, or are frequently transliterated Roman words and not Greek words. And there are other ways. Both labels, the label Canaanite, and the labels of Mark, Syrophoenician, and even Greek, where he called her a Greek, which is a cultural designation, both labels were true. But from a biblical perspective, that of Matthew is more informative. Evidently, hearing of the many miracles which Christ had performed, the Canaanite woman pursued him as he traveled through her area. She tried to get his attention, and he ignored her. But when the apostles became vexed at her persistence, they asked Christ to send her away, expecting him to comply with that request. So for their sake, Christ gave her his attention and informed her that she had no part with him, even calling her a dog in reference to her daughter while affirming that he was sent only for the children, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Ultimately, Christ had granted the Canaanite woman her wish, but only when she voluntarily agreed with him and with what he had said. So she admitted that she was indeed a dog, and Yahshua found her confession to be sincere. So, for her belief, after the ancient custom of the suppliant, she was granted mercy even in spite of whether or not she deserved it.
However, in the end, she was still a dog. She could never be a sheep. She was never a candidate for repentance or discipleship. Yahshua never shared with her the gospel of God. And she was told to go thy way, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 7, verse 29. Quite contrary to that episode, the Samaritan woman came to the well intent on going about her own business. And when she encountered Yahshua, he initiated conversation with her, even asking her a favor. When the, wo- when the woman was startled by his request, he made a great promise if she complied. Once the woman saw that he was a prophet and professed confidence in him, he agreed to share with her those living waters which lead to eternal life. Sending her off for her menfolk, the woman persuaded them and they also believed, begging Christ to stay and instruct them further. The disciples, who ostensibly were not aware that the woman was an Israelite, but who only knew her as a Samaritan, were surprised at this development but they did not object. Christ complied with the later request of her menfolk. He stayed to instruct them for two days, and he described that to his disciples as the reaping of the harvest of God. The Canaanite woman may have received a temporal reward for her agreement with Christ, but there was no mention of her having any part in the greater hope in Christ. And by her agreement, she also showed that she could not have expected to partake in any such hope. However, the Samaritan woman did have a hope and expectation of a Messiah. And the end result was that many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him, saying, For we heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Savior of their world, they also being of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, which were represented on the breastplate of the high priest, which represents the world which he came to save. It is clear that the Canaanite woman was a tare, but the Samaritan woman and her kinfolk were wheat, white for the harvest. In our last presentation, in verse 20 of this chapter, we saw that upon recognizing that Yahshua was a prophet, the Samaritan woman had asked him whether in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The act of worship was not even a factor in the episode of the Canaanite woman, who only sought a temporal favor. Now here, in the next verse, Yahshua answers her inquiry. Yahshua says to her, Believe me, woman, that the hour comes when neither on this mountain, meaning Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, because salvation is from among 
the Judeans. Here Christ refutes both the concept of organized worship at Gerizim and the future viability of the temple at Jerusalem. But he also distinguished the worship of the Samaritans from that of the Judeans in a way which indicates to us that while the claim of the woman to be a descendant of Jacob went unchallenged and must have been true, she was certainly not a Judean who would be expected to have been instructed in the law and the prophets. Concerning the declaration that salvation is from among the Judeans, this is not a quotation from any particular prophecy, but denominational commentators, the denominational commentators, usually cite Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3, where it says, And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Now, that is nice, but they carefully chose a passage for their references which promotes universalism or which they think by which they think they may promote universalism. A remnant of Judah was required in order to produce the Messiah for many reasons and that was a subject of prophecy especially in Daniel chapter 9. But from a general scriptural viewpoint, firstly, salvation is impossible without the law, which was preserved by that remnant of Judah. So we read in a prophecy in Genesis chapter 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Secondly, as it says in Psalm 114, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. Thirdly, in Hosea, we see that Judah was preserved in Judea for reason of salvation, where it says in Hosea chapter 1, And God said unto him, speaking of Hosea himself and the child that he was instructed to have with a whore. For God said unto him, Call her name Loruhama, for I will have no more mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Loruhama meaning no mercy. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and will save them by Yahweh their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. As a result of this, we see a little further on in the chapter, in verse 11, Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together, and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land 
for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So it is evident that Judah was preserved in large degree so that both Judah and Israel would ultimately be saved. But more significantly, the Messiah himself was expected to be from the tribe of Judah, of the seed of David, and from Bethlehem in Judea, as it is attested in the answer of the priests to Herod in Matthew chapter 2, where those priests had cited Micah chapter 5, where we read, But thou, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Bethlehem Ephratah, I'm sorry, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Ephratah being the ancient name of Bethlehem before the conquest of Canaan, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. At the time when it was given, this prophecy could only describe the expected Messiah. As, I, as a digression, Bethlehem means house of bread, and in John chapter 6, Christ declares himself to be the bread of life. So salvation, in the form of the Messiah, was certainly to come from among the Judeans, as Christ has declared here. But while we have these allusions in other prophets, more than anywhere else we may see what Christ had referred to in the words of the prophet Zechariah in chapters 8, 10, and 12. First, in Zechariah chapter 8, where Judah is also given first mention over Israel, we read, And it shall come to pass, that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and ye shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus saith Yahweh of hosts, As I thought to punish you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, saith Yahweh of hosts, and I repented not. So again have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear ye not. Most of Judah was taken away, along with Israel, by the Assyrians. But a remnant of Judah was left at Jerusalem for the reason given, that in this manner the houses of Israel and Judah would be saved. Then in Zechariah chapter 10, we read from verse 6, And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Now, in Zechariah's time, only 42,000 people had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel. And Zechariah was writing these prophecies as that second temple was being built. Most of Judah was either <clears throat> off in the Assyrian captivity with Israel or had chosen to remain behind in Babylonia.
So from Zechariah chapter 10, verse 6, I'm sorry for the digression. And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. And I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am Yahweh their God, and will hear them. Historically, the house of Judah in Palestine was strengthened in the days of the Maccabees, by which the people who maintained the law and the prophets were preserved from the persecutions of the Syrians under the Seleucids, as Antiochus Epiphanes had sought to stamp out the worship of Yahweh at Jerusalem. If that strengthening had not happened, then the connection of our Christian history to the Creator God of the Old Testament, as well as the Law and the Prophets themselves, may have disappeared. And we would have no knowledge whatsoever of the hope of our salvation or the plan of Yahweh God for our race. So Judah was strengthened in order that the house of Joseph and the remainder of Israel could be saved, those of the captivity. Finally, in Zechariah chapter 12, we read, In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in a sheaf, and they shall devour all the people round about, on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Yahweh shall also save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. Now there's a lot more to say about that prophecy, but... Not only was the gospel first among, announced among the Judeans, where there was a remnant of Judah, but preference was given to the tribe of Judah scattered abroad. As we explained in our concise essay, Classical Records of Trojan Roman Judah, the gospel was brought overseas, first to Rome, even before Paul ever brought it to the Greeks. And then Paul himself, was instructed to go to Macedonia, where he also went to the Illyrians before preaching to the Greeks in Asia. We believe that the Romans and the Illyrians were both descended from the Trojans. In fact, in Procopius, there is a statement that the great Emperor Justinian was a member of the tribe of the Dardanians who dwelt in Illyria, showing that those people of Darda and the Trojans were Dardans, they were also Dardanians, showing that the people of Darda were indeed in Illyria. So we believe that the Romans and Illyrians both were descended from the Trojans, which in turn were descended from the tribe of Judah. And in that manner was the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 12 symbolically fulfilled.
Of course, the process of salvation is not yet complete because we still reside here in this present evil age. Where Christ had told the woman that you worship that which you do not know, this is also evident in the history and prophecy concerning the children of Israel. We have already explained that the woman understood that she was an Israelite and had understood some of the traditions, while she also had an anticipation of a Messiah. But we have also seen that she was not versed in the law or in the prophets. So she hoped for a Messiah who would announce to us all things, as she had attested. If she did understand the law, or if she had been brought up with it, perhaps she may not have had five husbands, and perhaps she would not have been with the sixth man who was not her husband. Thus we read, where it is speaking of scattered Israel in Isaiah chapter 42, And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. Even though they did not know him, he would not forsake them. Then again in Jeremiah chapter 4, from verse 22, Yahweh says, For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. Once more, and Jeremiah was speaking to Israel in those early chapters, once more we read in Hosea chapter 5, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn to their God. For the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known Yahweh. Neither could this woman, who had five husbands, have actually known Yahweh. Or she would have known and kept his law. We can see in Jeremiah chapter 9 that dwelling in the presence of Yahweh in his temple is not enough for the people to know him, but that to know him, the people must also cease from iniquity, where it says, Take ye heed every one his neighbor, and trust ye not in any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanders, and they will deceive every one his neighbor, and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. They labor so hard to sin that they get tired from it. Thine habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, saith Yahweh. So knowing Yahweh is keeping his commandments. Christ continues to answer her question concerning where it was necessary to worship. But the hour comes, and is now, John chapter 4, verse 23, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, 
For the Father also seeks such as those worshipping him. Yahweh is a spirit, and for those worshipping him it is necessary to worship in spirit and in truth. <coughs> the Christian hope is not in a stone building, but rather it is in a God who dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as we read in Acts chapter 17 and 7. I got that backwards. Rather than another stone temple, Yahweh has promised instead to ultimately set his tabernacle among men. So rather than people going to church to find God, God's going to come to us. Yahweh has promised and said to ultimately set his tabernacle among men, which is in the person of Yahshua Christ, as it is prophesied in relation to a new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them for evermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This promise is also repeated in Revelation chapter 21, where in verse 3 it says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself, in the person of Yahshua Christ, the Lamb, shall be with them and be their God. This is why the many promises of a return to Zion or to Jerusalem in Palestine do not necessarily mean that the people of Israel will return to those old places physically. Rather, these promises represent a return to God himself, a return in spirit and not in geography. A departure from Yahweh means a departure from his law, as we see in Malachi chapter 3. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, meaning keep those ordinances. And I will return unto you, saith Yahweh of hosts. In this same manner, we see a similar plea in Isaiah chapter 44. Following a reminder of their idolatry and other sins, where we read, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee, thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Redemption in Christ requires the children of Israel to keep his law. 
In Exodus chapter 20, we see a reference to Yahweh where he is described as showing mercy unto the thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Then in John chapter 14, Christ says, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Then a little further on in verse 23, If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Returning to God is keeping commandments. And then God comes to us. So where Paul attests that we know that the law is spiritual, we can see that a keeping of the law is the worshiping of God in spirit and in truth. Where in Jeremiah chapter 9, we have seen that the people of ancient Jerusalem had rejected the law and the truth even though they had the benefit of the presence of Yahweh in the Temple of Solomon. Not a law makes an attestation. I'm sorry. Now the woman makes an attestation, which reveals her expectancy of a savior and the fact that she was indeed a dry tree, worthy of and awaiting the water which leads to eternal life. In verse 25, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah comes, who is called Christ. When he should come, he shall announce to us all things. Ostensibly, from the prophecies found in Daniel, and perhaps also from other sources which are unknown to us today, or at least unknown to me today, it is apparent that many Israelites in Judea and elsewhere were expecting a Messiah to appear at this very time. So the first such expectancy is found in the account of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, and then in the testimony of John the Baptist, who declared Yahshua to be the Lamb of God 30 years later. Thereafter, there was the exclamation of Andrew in John chapter 1, where he informed his brother, Simon Peter, that we have found the Messiah. Here we see that a humble woman of Samaria had that same expectation, by which it is evident that she certainly was a daughter of Israel, as she said. Anyone of another race and an alien culture would not even have such an expectation in a Messiah, which was strictly a Hebrew word. The Canaanite woman was not expecting a Messiah, and she admitted that she was not worthy of one. She merely noticed this man who could heal people and do other wonderful things, and she sought him out for the purpose of procuring a temporal benefit for, her, for herself, which was for the health of her daughter. Even devils are willing to agree with Christ if they think they may gain a profit from it. 
But in contrast, the Samaritan woman expected nothing from a Messiah except that he announced to us all things, hoping to learn and to grow spiritually rather than merely to profit temporally. So Christ responds accordingly. Yahshua says to her, I am he who is speaking to you. That's an exact quote from Isaiah chapter 52. Of course, these words explicitly declare the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 52, which is also a prophecy of the gospel from verse 6. Therefore, Yahweh speaking, of course, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, and says unto Zion, Thy God reigns. Paraphrasing. There are several other similar prophecies in Isaiah where Yahweh, in connection with a promised Savior and Redeemer, declares that I am He. Here he says, I am He who is speaking to you. In Isaiah chapter 6, speaking of the salvation of Israel, Yahweh says, I am He that does speak. Christ made that same assertion, that I am He quite frequently during his ministry, as he was indeed Yahweh God incarnate. We are also persuaded, as we explained earlier in the series in relation to the wedding feast in Cana, described in John chapter 2, that the event in Nazareth, which is recorded in Luke chapter 4, happened somewhat earlier than this encounter in Sychar, as it was evidently not long after the wedding feast in Cana. There, Yahshua had implied that he was the Messiah, where he said in a reference to that prophecy which he read in the synagogue, and which is found in Isaiah chapters 58 and 61, that this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. But this instance here is the first time recorded in scripture where Yahshua had explicitly admitted to being the Messiah. Yahshua himself explicitly admitted to being the Messiah. An admission that he often denied to others, and especially to his adversaries. When they asked him, he just wouldn't answer. Later, or he answered very indirectly, later, when Yahshua himself had finally told the apostles that he was the Messiah. He even asked them not to reveal it, as the record attests in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, or in Mark chapter 8, verse 30. Continuing here with John chapter 4. And with this his students had come, and they wondered that he had spoken with a woman, yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? 
The apostles would be expected to wonder why Yahshua would speak with a Samaritan woman, as the woman herself described the attitude of the Judeans toward the Samaritans. Several years later, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 10, Peter needed to see the vision of the sheet three times to get the message that the things which Yahweh has cleansed you do not deem profane. Yahweh had promised to cleanse the lost sheep of the children of Israel, but not even Peter could have known the full extent of that as he received the vision. Many years later, when he wrote his epistles, it is evident that he came to know it. The Samaritan woman was a daughter of Israel, and so was the Roman Cornelius and those of his household. Yet the apostles did not know that here at this time. Where it is evident that John himself had marveled as to why they did not question Christ when he was found speaking to the woman. So here we see that the apostles did not protest the fact that Yahshua spoke to a Samaritan woman, even though earlier in the chapter the woman herself testified that the Judeans have no dealings with the Samaritans. But when the apostles were vexed with the pleas of the Canaanite woman much later in the ministry of Christ. They tried to run her off. Evidently they didn't apply this lesson of the Samaritan woman to the experience with the Canaanite woman. When upon her persistence they failed to run her off. They even begged Christ to run her off, and they fully expected him to do so. Yet, even though he decided to grant her mercy, the apostles were never criticized for their desire to run her off. Clearly, the apostles themselves, not knowing the character of either woman, The ethnicity of the women, which the apostles did recognize, could have been the only reason for the difference in how each of them was treated, as no other reason existed. No other apparent reason existed. In fact, the, the Samaritan woman would have been considered a great sinner for having had five husbands. Then the woman left her water and went off to the city and says to the man, Come, see a man who has told me all things whatever I had done. Could it be that he is the Christ? Ostensibly, the woman did not live in the city, which was Shechem, but in the nearby village, Sikar, where the well was located. So, she would not have wanted to carry it to the city. In verse 16, after the woman had expressed her desire for living water, Yahshua had said to her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. From that point we had a digression in the resulting extended dialogue. But here the woman gladly complies, and announces to her menfolk with confidence that she has met the Messiah. The response of the men also indicates that they, too, were of the children of Israel. 
So they came out of the city and came to him. Now, this does not necessarily conflict with our interpretation of verse 8, where we noted that the place where the woman drew water must have been a small town or village outside of the city, and that must also have been where she lived. It is not likely that, it w that the woman traveled a great distance every time she needed water for her house, which may even have been several times each day. Here the woman did not necessarily go to the city because her menfolk lived there. Rather, since it is now early afternoon, she most likely went to the city because that was where they would have been working during the day. <coughs> Knowing the likelihood that these men are also children of Israel, as the woman had attested for herself. This entire episode is indeed a fulfillment of prophecy such as that which is found in Isaiah chapter 55. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that has no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yeah, come buy milk and wine. Without money and without price. That milk and wine really being the word of God. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, for your labor, for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight in its fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that which knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run under thee. These are all the estranged children of Israel. Shall run unto thee because of Yahweh thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified thee. We had already cited this passage in reference to the comparison by John the Baptist of the Messiah to a bridegroom in part 11 of this series of presentations. We may cite it again before the series is completed. I'm sure we probably will. Before the focus returns to the men who were brought by the Samaritan woman, there is a discourse between Christ and his recently arrived disciples, who had been off in the markets of Shechem in order to procure food. In the meantime, his students asked him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. Then the students said to one another, has anyone bought for him to eat? As a digression, the disciples of John the Baptist also referred to him as rabbi. Later, Christ tells his own disciples to reject the title for themselves, which is a derivative of the Hebrew word meaning my great one or my master. In the Old Testament, the root of the term, the word Rob, 
The root of the term appears in compound words such as Rob Mag, Rob Saris, or Rob Shakeh, which respectively are interpreted to mean Chief Soothsayer, Chief Eunuch, and Chief Cupbearer, words which describe various officers of an ancient court. But concerning the godly order of society, Christians have only one chief, as Christ had said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 23. But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren, meaning we are all equal peers. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. In that context, father refers not to a true biological father, but to those who would assume such a title in a manner which is supposed to convey authority over others, such as the professional priests have done. So their presumption of authority is certainly not righteous according to Christ. The one organization of the children of Israel, I'm sorry, the organization of the children of Israel into a body of peers with one head reflects the original government which was ordained by Yahweh in the period of the judges. Before the children of Israel demanded a king, Yahweh himself was their king. In the gospel, Christ revealed that it is the will of God for men to ultimately return to that form of government, where rather than seeking earthly kings, Yahweh himself as Christ is king. Yahshua says to them, verse 34, My food is that I shall do the will of he who has sent me, and that I shall finish his work. So the words coming out of his mouth are his food. Like Nicodemus and then the Samaritan woman, the apostles at first interpreted his words in their literal sense. But Yahshua did not need to eat at this moment because he was filled with the word of God and it was time to share it with the children of Israel. So it says in Proverbs chapter 18, a man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. Another Old Testament type for this circumstance is found in Ezekiel chapter 3, which also seems to be a prophecy which Christ alludes to by the analogy which he offered here. Moreover, from Ezekiel chapter 3, Verse 1, Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, a phrase by which Yahshua often described himself, Eat that thou findest. Eat this roll, meaning a scroll, a written scroll with words. Eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll, or scroll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. 
And he said unto me, Son of man, go, get thee under the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. Thusly Christ was full, and needed to speak his words to the house of Israel before any concern for his own fleshly needs. Now Yahshua makes yet another analogy in verse 35. Do you not say that there are still four months and the harvest comes? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and see the fields, that they are already white for harvest. He reaping receives a wage and gathers fruit for eternal life, that he sowing and he reaping would rejoice together. In Proverbs chapter 10 we read, He that gathers in summer is a wise son, but he that sleeps in the harvest is a son that causes shame. Earlier in this commentary, in another context, we cited Isaiah chapter 27, where it says, That he shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom in blood, bud, I'm sorry, and fill the face of the world with fruit. But although there are many prophecies concerning a future gathering of scattered Israel, and many describing the children of Israel as plants or as fruit, the analogy here is not found directly, except in many of the statements and parables of Christ found elsewhere in the Gospel. In the words of the prophets, usually at least where they speak in relation to the gathering of Israel, the children of Israel are either explicitly referred to as sons or daughters, or are described as a flock of scattered sheep. There is, however, an example in the prophet Amos, which seems to presage the words of Christ here. First, where Amos is asked by Amaziah, not to prophesy in Bethel. We read, Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee away, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel. For it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court, then answered Amos, and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And Yahweh took me as I followed the flock, and Yahweh said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel, not Judah. So the humble Amos was both a shepherd and a gatherer of fruit before he was called to prophecy. Then a little further on in Amos, in chapter 8, we read a judgment against Israel. Thus hath the Lord Yahweh God showed unto me, <clears throat> and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then said Yahweh unto me, the end is come upon my people Israel. I shall not pass again by them any more. Then, in the last verses of his prophecy, in chapter 9, there is a message of hope, where we see that he sowing, or the plowman, is not he who gathers, or the reaper. 
Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities, and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens, and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, that they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith Yahweh thy God. So Christ continues with what had evidently become a proverb in Israel. In verse 37, For in this the word is true, that it is one who sows and another who reaps. Where does concept usually appears in scripture, such as in Deuteronomy chapter 28, in Job chapter 31, in Micah chapter 6, or in Zephaniah chapter 1? It is a negative context and a punishment upon the disobedient. You shall sow a vineyard, or you shall sow a field, and another will eat of it. The contrary predicament, where a man eats the fruit of what he himself plants, also appears in scripture in a positive context as a sign of deliverance and blessing. For example, in Isaiah chapter 65 and, as we just read, in Amos chapter 9. In another positive context, it is found in Joshua chapter 24, where the conquest of Canaan was referenced, and the children of Israel were reminded of their reward, where we read, And he gave you a land on which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and ye were settled in them, and ye eat of vineyards and olive yards which you did not plant. And now the fear of the Lord and serve him in righteousness, and now fear the Lord, and serve him in righteousness and justice, and remove the strange gods which our fathers served beyond the river, referring to Abraham and his ancestors beyond the Euphrates, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. So in any event, the saying must have become a proverb, and it is a reward to the reaper, to be able to reap or to gather what he did not sow. In that manner, Christ continues, I have sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others labored and you entered in for their labor. This is also a matter of prophecy. But the prophecy is not expressed in precisely the same manner or even in an apparently explicit manner. Concerning the children of Israel, this is a prophecy which is found in the words of Hosea in chapters 1 and 2, in a passage which is certainly relevant to what is transpiring here in a land which had once belonged to Ephraim, as the name of Ephraim is used synonymously for Israel, not in these passages, but 
synonymously for Israel throughout most of the words of the prophet Hosea. First from Hosea chapter 1. Now when she had weaned, and I understand we just read this, but we must speak of another aspect of it. Now when she had weaned Loruhama, which means no mercy, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Then from Hosea chapter 2, from verse 19, the promise of betrothment, we have already spoke about this recently in our commentary on the Apostle John, but here we will speak about it from a different perspective once again. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know Yahweh, and it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith Yahweh, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, speaking of the nation of Israel. And I will say unto them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Where it says in Hosea that in the place where it was said to them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said to them, Ye are the sons of the living God, the living God. This is a reference to the bringing of the gospel of God to the scattered children of Israel by the apostles of Christ. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul of Tarsus explained in chapter 4 that the nations to whom the promise was certain were the very nations which came from the seed of Abraham. And then in chapter 9, he cited this very passage in relation to the vessels of mercy which were the descendants of Jacob. In Romans chapter 8, Paul explained to them that they were indeed the children of God. As Hosea explains, it was the cast-off children of Israel who were not my people, and it is the reconciled children of Israel who are the sons of the living God. The word Jezreel, which appears in each of these passages, means God sows. We have also already read this earlier, where Yahweh said in Amos chapter 9, And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith Yahweh thy God. That prophecy, in turn, evokes a much earlier one found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, where Yahweh had spoken through the mouth of Nathan the prophet, who said to David, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, 
I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. So the apostles would ultimately be sent by Christ to gather the harvest, although it was not they who had done the sowing. It is Yahweh himself who had done the sowing. He planted them. And the apostles were thereby doing, given the task of doing the reaping, the gathering, the collecting, by turning all of the children of Israel to Christ. Now the object of focus shifts back to the people of the village who would be brought back by the Samaritan woman from the nearby city. And from that city, many of the Samaritans had believed in him through the word of testimony of the woman that he told me all the things which I had done. That Yahshua could reveal things he normally should not have known indicated to the woman that he was extraordinary and by which she was also persuaded that he was indeed the Messiah. Therefore, as the Samaritans came to him, having asked him to stay with them, then he stayed there for two days. This episode is a symbolic representation of the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31, the same chapter where the new covenant is promised, where Yahweh said, Again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built O virgin of Israel, thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrays, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant, and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion unto Yahweh our God. For thus saith Yahweh, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Yahweh, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. This event also evokes yet another prophecy concerning Ephraim, which is found in Hosea chapter 6, where the people are depicted as saying, Come and let us return unto Yahweh, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Continuing to describe this event, John writes, And with many more they believed through his word. And they had said to the woman, That no longer do we believe because of your speech, for we ourselves have heard, and we know that he is truly the Savior of the society. The people were able to perceive the nature of Christ and believe with their own eyes that the woman, what the woman had first attested. This is the opening of the eyes of the blind, which is prophesied in Isaiah that Christ had cited in reference to himself. That will be an interesting topic of this discussion 
when we ever get to John chapter 9. And after two days, he departed from there for Galilee. As we had discussed presenting the earlier portion of this chapter, at the well of Jacob in Sikar, Yahshua had only taken a respite, or a respite, I think it's pronounced, a respite from his long journey from Jerusalem to Cana in Galilee, a distance of nearly 70 miles by air, and probably many more than that on foot. John now writes in conclusion, For Yahshua himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own fatherland. Yahshua did not necessarily make this statement to the Samaritans, but rather, John only seems to be recalling something that Yahshua must have said at an earlier time. As we have explained, the first time he was rejected in Nazareth, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 4, was shortly after the wedding feast in Cana, and his visit to Jerusalem, where he had overthrown the tables of the money changers. It was before his visit to Jerusalem, where he had overthrown the tables of the money changers, recorded in John chapter 2. John did not record that first rejection in Nazareth, but Yahshua's having been there at that time is mentioned in Matthew chapter 4 verse 13. And the full account of his rejection after speaking in the synagogue there was recorded in Luke chapter 4. So while we do not actually find a record of Yahshua's statement that a prophet is not without honor save in his own country and in his own house, until a later time, in reference to another event which is recorded in Matthew chapter 13 and in Mark chapter 6, it is very likely that John had heard it from Christ in reference to an earlier event, such as the rejection at Nazareth, which he did not record. We will continue with John chapter 4 when we resume our commentary, Yahweh willing, on January, chap on January 25th. Next week we hope to present a paper from Clifton Emmerheiser. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.